If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 7. When we get into our text this evening, that's where we're going to be spending our time at. Luke chapter 7. Tonight we wrap up, albeit a few weeks late, we wrap up our study of the parables, some of the lesser known parables in the life of Christ. The ministers that have gone before me, Ben, Kyle, and Mingu, have done an excellent job of, of diving deep into some of the parables that we spend, we don't spend much time on and uh, have done a, an excellent job of, of bringing lessons and, and good points from them. And isn't it amazing, God's Word, that every time we open to it, every time we go into it, we find new things. Parables that don't get maybe much attention, they're not the Luke 15 parables, right? Parables that are, are small in size or kind of in, sandwiched in, in between two bigger moments in the life of Christ. Or maybe parables... We don't really spend much too, too much time on them because, well, we've spent so much time on them in times before. And isn't it amazing that even in these texts, such amazing things can be found? Isn't it amazing that the same text that maybe you heard a lesson on when you were first taught it in Sunday school as a child, now some years gone, there's st still new points to take from it. I remember a teacher telling me when I was growing up that the Bible goes with you, right? You, can, you take it with you everywhere you go, but it also grows with you. The Word may never change, but as you change, new principles and new blessings that can come out of that, you find that. So uh, I, th I think about my in-laws who every year do a year, an annual Bible reading. And, and I love checking in. as we, we spent some time with them this past week and, and asking where they were at in their study and what text they were reading at the moment. And I loved the comments that both Hannah's mom and dad were able to pull out saying, you know, this is my fourth time reading this passage, or I know this is my, you know, 44th time reading this passage, but I had never noticed this, or this, this moment right here, I never had really kind of thought of it in that way. So tonight we're going to go to a passage, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, in a few moments. It might be one that you're familiar with. It might be one that you maybe not spend much time on it, but my prayer tonight is that it'll be one that you'll take a lot away from. It'll be one that I will do a good job explaining to you and that we can walk away uplifted and encouraged by that. Before we get to that, though, I want to talk about a concept that we're probably all familiar with, the concept of, of, of a paradigm shift. This idea that we're familiar with in, in kind of all walks of life, something, the definition states, something that... A fundamental change in approach or underlying assumption. Maybe one of the more famous paradigm shifts or almost an illusion type thing where depending on how you look at it, it might show you one thing. might be the whole, is this a duck? Or, ready for me to blow your mind, is this a bunny rabbit, right? And so if you look at it from left to right, in this image you might, if you read, if you read like a you know, typical American, you're going to read left to right, you're going to read, you, you may look left to right and say, oh, it's a duck, but then when you flip it over, when you look, read from left to right, the, the shifting of perspective, the shifting of the image, even though the image is the exact same image, just flipped around, the, the shift has happened. Now you can see it in a different light. And what and I'm sure you've seen this, I'm sure you've seen a lot better ones, right? But now what well, used to be a, a duck, now is a rabbit, right? It's magic. There, there are paradigm shifts in movies, some of the more famous ones where you, where you watch a movie, you watch it all the way through and you get to the very end and you realize some, some piece of information is revealed, some, some character is altered in your, in your view, and it all changes. It may be the person who you've been following has been dead all along, right? Maybe it's one of those movies where as soon as it's done, you say, okay, let me rewind that, let me take the disc out, put it right back in. I'm going to start it all over because now my perspective has changed. Or maybe it's 2 Samuel chapter 12 in the perspective of David. Where we had a paradigm shift happen in his own life when Samuel, uh, when Nathan comes up to him and tells him a little story about a small sheep that was stolen from the sheep's owner. David realizes his sin in Bathsheba. He realizes the mistakes he's made. His, his vision, his, it's really it's his, his perspective has changed. Only because of that, a simple change in perspective means everything to David because now he sees himself in the, in the true light and sees what he's done. He's able to repent. He's able to, to continue to hold on to that title of a man after the heart of God, right? All because he had his perspective, his view on something changed. And in this example, his view on himself. 
So a paradigm shift is something that we're all familiar, familiar with, something that we all, we might can think of other movies or stories or maybe a time in your life or maybe because of a trip that you went on or an experience that happened to you specifically that your perspective was just radically changed and it meant all the difference. Tonight in Luke chapter 7, we're going to see Jesus show a paradigm shift in the, in the life of one man. This is a small parable. In my Bible, it's only 33 words long. But nonetheless, it packs a, a massive message. And what it meant to the people listening to it that first day, and, and then 2,000 years later, a 14-verse narrative, really what it is is in a parable, it's two, it's two verses tucked in, between, in, a, in a narrative that only spans about 14 verses. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50 a parable that's found right in the middle that changes everything for those in the room that night. And maybe if we'll, give it, if we'll give attention to it tonight, it might mean all the difference to us in this room tonight. So let's read the passage. Let's read it in its length. Well, I, do I want to read that now or do I want to come back? Let's go ahead and read. Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50, and then we'll get into some context of this. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet, anointing them with perfume, now, when the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Verse 40, And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning toward the, toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She gave, you gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. And for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, well, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In this story, we really have three characters. You have the man in the middle named Jesus, and you have one man on the other end named Simon, a Pharisee, who has invited Jesus into his house. And then we have a woman who we don't know the name of, the sinful woman that the text calls her, the sinful woman who what we'll call her tonight. And what I'd like to do with our brief time with each other this evening is to dive really into the narrative to, to pull out all the meaning of this parable. So let's look at these two characters before we really dive into the image of Jesus in this, in this narrative. But the two sides of the story, well, one end, we've got Simon. Back in verse 36, the first aspect, the first mention that we have of him. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So what do we know about this Pharisee? What do we know about this man that we later will find out is named Simon? Well, first off, we know that he's a Pharisee. We know that he, uh, he, he belongs to that sect of Jewish leaders that fancies themselves as the best. Their name literally means to separate separate, separatists. And so he likes to think of himself often, if he, if he falls into the image of the rest of the Pharisees, as someone who's just a tad better than the people around him. He needs to separate himself just a little bit, just by his upbringing, his knowledge, his wisdom, and his last name. Who he is as a person, just by that alone, He's a little better than the people around him. Now let's look at the context of this passage. Go back to the same chapter, verse 11. This is when Jesus arrives into the city that Simon is living in. 
Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. And now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, and the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up, began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. So Jesus arrived at the city that Simon is living in at this moment, and Jesus arrives through the gate of Nain, and what happens is a funeral procession going by. Jesus sees this sad case of a woman losing her only son, a widow at that, at that point, and he stops and he raises this man up from the dead. And there's a sizable crowd that is mentioned that is around him at this, at this moment. So this is not a miracle that's performed in secrecy. This is not a miracle where afterwards Jesus says, okay, go and tell no one, right? This is a miracle that happens in front of a huge crowd in a new city that Jesus is visiting in our text. The response in verse 16, Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and all the surrounding district. His reputation, this, the story of this example is now running rapid across the area, as it should, right? You have the feeding miracles, you have the healing miracles, but then you have this certain set, set, set of miracles where Jesus raises people from the dead. It's one thing to see a man heal someone. It's another thing to see a man, it's something that we've obviously never seen, to see someone heal someone by the power of God, to see someone feed people by the power of God. But what does it look like? To have a coffin walking by, a corpse laying down in it, and a man to call that up. That is the next level of miracles that Jesus shows to the people around him. So, of course, his name, his reputation, precedes him where he goes. If we keep reading in this chapter, verses 18 through 21, we have this, we have this situation where John, John the Baptist, is starting to doubt what's going on. He's starting to doubt maybe this Jesus, his cousin, really is the true Messiah. So he sends two disciples of his own to really verify that Jesus really is the man who he thinks he is. In verse 20, when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases, afflictions, evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So now, inside of Nain, a party from John comes out and is questioning Jesus, and in front of them, to give them evidence, he heals people of diseases and afflictions, he removes evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. He sends them off. Verse 24, after they have, when the messenger of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. And then from there, all the way down to verse 28, it talks about the, the prominency of John and the importance of the man that he is. Verse 29 and verse 30, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Now, why did, why did we read all of this context to get back to Simon all the, way, all the way down in verse 36? I believe this gives us a reason why Simon is inviting Jesus into his home. Simon is inviting a very popular man that a lot of people love into his house. I remember growing up at, at Tarrant Church of Christ with, with Nana. We had about 20 people in the congregation, right? And if we had a guest speaker come in, it was kind of a fight of who was going to take them home for lunch that day, right? It was a, it was a big honor to invite the, the preacher who had came and preached that morning. Okay, Miss Bonnie, is it, you know, the, the, uh, the pursers are inviting you know, James Andrews over tonight. Wow, that's awesome. And maybe at times where Nana, maybe, I don't know if there's a bid system, right? Maybe Nana won the bid, to, to, and we would all go out to lunch together, and I got to spend that time with the guest speaker. That was a big honor to have someone who was brought in, had someone that everybody loved to hear, and he get that extra little bit of special time with that person. So Simon, I believe, he invites Jesus into his home, maybe not so much to honor Jesus, but really to bring honor to himself. Because he sees that this is possibly, possibly a prophet, Right? People are already in verse 17 and 18, 16 and 17 are already kind of spreading the word that a great prophet has arrived, a great man has arrived. 
But then as he stays there, later on in the text, we start to see that they finally get the idea that this is more than that. Verses 29 through 30. But the Pharisees, the group that Simon himself belongs to, ah, they're not convinced yet. They rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. We have to remember that. Well, John and the Pharisees really didn't quite get along, did they? Matthew chapter 3, upon them showing up at one of his sermons, upon the Pharisees walking up to one of his mass baptisms, he goes, oh, you brood of vipers, who told you to come here, right? There's no love lost between the the Pharisees and John the Baptist. And now Jesus is publicly defending and honoring John the Baptist. The Pharisees go, okay, well, this, this was great. But I still don't know about this. So Simon invites Jesus over to his house, maybe to bring honor to himself, but possibly just to get to to know him better, to see where Jesus stands, to really verify whether this is a true prophet or not. Simon is a Pharisee. His reputation is marked with honor and wisdom. His place is of high-ranking host. He sits in a place of honor because, well possibly the greatest prophet in the the land, the only prophet at the time, is sitting at his table this night. And the action that got him noticed in this passage, the only action that we really know Simon from, is well, he invited Jesus into his house. He invited Jesus into his home, which is a great step, right? And then we have the sinful woman. The woman that stands on the other side of the spectrum of Simon. You have Jesus here in the middle of this story that's orchestrating different things and speaking to both of them. Simon on one end who's throwing this, this dinner. And now we have the sinful woman who comes busting into the scene in verse 37. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining the table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And we know what she does from there. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man truly were a prophet, touching him, is a sinner. You see, we learn a lot about Simon because of the title that goes behind his sin behind his name, right? When you Google Simon the, uh, when you type in, one of the t- first top hits you're going to have is Simon the Pharisee. What we get in this passage is a man Simon, and the, the qualifying statement is that he's a Pharisee. Well, the woman also has a qualifying statement, and that's simply that she's a sinner, and a well-known sinner at that. Her reputation is not of honor and wisdom, but of disgrace. Her place is not of a high-ranking host like Simon, but rather a low life that's come right off the street. And the action that she's known for, though, Simon may have invited the house, but the sinful woman sought out Jesus to simply praise him and to fall down at his feet and to show love and adoration. We don't know much about her besides the fact that, well, everybody knew that she was a sinner. So some have speculated speculate that maybe this means that she's a prostitute or or serves in some type of manner like that. We just know that she comes possibly maybe not and when she walks in the room everybody knows who and what she is. And this is where the two come together. On one end you have Simon, on the other end you have the sinful woman. Two people who would never mix, right? Two individuals whose paths may have never come together if it had not Jesus being in the middle of them, they physically come together because she comes into Simon's house. And to try to put ourselves in the shoes or, or you know, in the room that night, you see as common custom a low-lying table, men lying on their left side, reclined at the table, head closer to the table, feet away, right? Maybe the meal has already begun and a woman busts in the seams, not saying a word possibly, and starts weeping at the feet of Jesus. Jesus possibly is engaged in a conversation as he starts to feel the tears fall on his feet. And he starts to notice, can you imagine the silence that filled the room as these high, prestigious, elite Pharisees and a mix that have gathered that night have no idea what to do with this woman who's just come into Simon's home. And there's a distinct difference in crying and weeping, right? We've all, we all know that. 
Because we've all cried. I've cried in a lot of movies, some I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit of, right? There's a handful of times in my life where I've, where I've wept. You have this sinful woman weeping at the feet of Jesus, not speaking, not giving any explanation, not apologizing to the host, to Simon, for barging in, crying over his feet, and she's let her hair down, which is already another point outside of normal custom for the day and age, and she's wiping his feet. Then maybe she pulls out, or sometimes they would wear it around a necklace, a small flask, or a vial of, of perfume. Sometimes expensive, sometimes not, but in this case, very expensive. An alabaster vial. Just the vial itself is expensive. And she breaks it. Breaks the vial off. This vial will not be used again, right? And starts to anoint him. It's hard to, to put myself in that room. I've been in some, we've all maybe been in awkward situations where as something was going on, you didn't really know how to respond. You didn't know what words to use. You didn't really maybe even know where to look at with your eyes or where to face at because of what, how awkward what was going on. Some people may have been moved by the emotion of the room. Some people may have been annoyed at the disruption in conversation. But Simon, he simply has one question. Well, this simply reveals one thing to him. Verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him. That she's a sinner. Simon can't see her. He sees a low life. He sees a sinner. He sees filth come into his house. He sees that, but he doesn't see the person. He doesn't see the individual. He doesn't see the soul behind the reputation. Because of that... Because Jesus is allowing this to happen and is allowing for this to continue, Simon is convinced, well, this is no prophet, because if this was a prophet, then surely he only stopped this. He would have never allowed this to happen. If this was a prophet of God, he would have stopped her before she ever came in. Maybe as they were eating, he says, hold on, let me take care of something. He stands up and he politely just asks her to go away. If he were a prophet, he would have never let it get to this point, let alone you. In Simon's mind, this is, well, this, that seals the deal. This is, this is a great man. In this image, this is what is so mind-blowing to me. This image outranks in Simon's mind, Simon who lives in the city of Nain, who has heard from countless people that he ra- Jesus raised a man from the dead, that Jesus has healed people, given um, sight back to the blind. All those instances go below this now example of, well, he let a sinner approach him. That means more. To Simon. The evidence of raising someone for the dead, the evidence of clear divine power is made mute by the idea that Jesus allowed someone who's a known sinner to come close to him and to cry at his feet. That meant more to Simon than the miracles that Jesus had, had done, probably maybe right in front of his face. So now they're physically together, right? They're in the same room. Simon is thinking in his heart, Christ clearly hears this. The Simon is thinking inwardly, well, this seals the deal, this is no prophet. The two, Simon, the sinful woman, are sitting near, near each other at this point, but now Jesus brings them together spiritually. They might be in the same room, but they're not on the same level until Jesus tells a simple parable in verse 41. A money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Such a simple story, right? There's no need of character names. There's no, there's no need for great explanation. There's a debt and two different people who could not pay it, regardless of the price. And then one simple question. One simple question. Do, so which of them will love him more? And I love the answer from Simon, because I, I, I believe that Simon knew exactly where this was going. This was the plain, clear, clear and simple message that Jesus is preaching here. And when Jesus turns this on Simon, he says, so, what, so who's going to love him more? And I love how the New American puts it. I suppose, Simon says, I suppose the one who forgave him more. Have you ever had to ask a child to, to answer a question that they didn't want to answer? Maybe they've got chocolate over the mouth and you have to ask them, hey, did you, did you get in the cookie jar? Simon, knowing what Jesus is getting to, Jesus says, 
who loves the moneylender more? In my mind, I see Simon almost bowing his head going, well, I suppose the one who forgave more, who was forgiven more. And now they're brought together. Simon and the sinful woman, they're not only in the same room, but now spiritually in the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of the people around them, the message has been made, they're on the same playing field. Whether it's $500,000 or $50,000 or $5,000, both had a debt that, that could not be paid back by their own means. Both were forgiven of that debt, and now love was the adequate response. And the person who had been forgiven more should love more back. Jesus then goes on to not only bring the two together, but he elevates the image of the woman over Simon due to her reaction to forgiveness and love. Reading verses 44 through 47, we see that they're in 41 and 42 that they're, on, they're in the same room, they're on the same playing field, they both had a death, but then Jesus takes it to the next level by now elevating the sinful woman over Simon. Because, because then Jesus starts to call Simon out on all the things that he failed to do. I walked in, you gave me no water to wash my feet. I walked in, you, 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 you didn't greet me with any kiss. I walked in, you didn't anoint my head with oil. But she hasn't stopped since she's got here. Maybe she's still doing this as he's saying these very words. So now he's elevating. Not only is it a paradigm shift in the, in the eyes of of Simon, that they're on the same playing field, but now Jesus is elevating the sinful woman over Simon because of her adequate response to the forgiveness that is possible. Because at this moment, he hasn't, Jesus hasn't forgiven her sins yet. When she busts in the door, carrying the perfume, starts crying over his feet, wiping his feet with her hair, forgiveness has not been extended yet in this, in this narrative. In, in the details that we know, the sins have not been, not been forgiven yet by Christ. But maybe his reputation and the idea that a man like that could love and care for a sinner like her prompted that response. That the mere idea that Jesus was in her city, this woman runs to Jesus to praise him. He hasn't even offered forgiveness yet to her. And the name, purpose, reputation have preceded him, though. And she knew where forgiveness could be found. The three things that she did that Simon failed to do. The actions of the sinful woman, the, the customs of that day and age did not control her. She was not invited into this home. She should not have let her hair down at this moment in the presence of other men. She should not have made herself prominent in this narrative, in this situation. But she did because of the, the amount of love she had for Jesus. Maybe she had seen him from afar, maybe a relative, maybe her herself had been healed by him in some other time. But she broke all the norms and customs of her day and age just to show him how much he loved her. she loved him. How can we do that today? How can we break norms and customs in our life, in our workplace, in our homes, to show Christ how much we love him? Now, we don't need to be breaking into anybody's houses to, 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 to declare, hey, I don't know if you know this yet, and sorry to interrupt your dinner, but I really love Jesus, right? I'm not asking you to do that. But if tomorrow, in, at work, sitting around the water cooler, sitting around lunch, whatever it may be, if you brought up your faith, or if you brought up the idea that you had such an encouraging Sunday, that the lesson Sunday morning from Kyle, and the new series that he's kicking off is one that you're excited about. Maybe that's not a norm, right? I remember also... I learned a lot with Nana, right? Back at Nana's beauty shop. One of the things me and Nana teaching me was a few things, Jay, you never talk about, right? In the beauty shop, Jay, don't talk about politics or religion, right? You don't want to bring that up because we have a lot of different people coming in you never know. That's a customer norm that we're really used to that's kind of grounded in us that people that maybe were, were more than just strangers with coworkers with, we don't want to bring that up because we don't want to, we don't want to invite any awkwardness into our lives. This sinful woman goes in every day to work and every conversation that she has because of the debt that's been forgiven her, because of the forgiveness that is possible for her, because of that, every conversation is centered around the forgiveness that she has experienced. Don't let customs or norms control your love 
for Christ. But another thing she did is she didn't let materials limit her. She didn't have to anoint Christ that night. She didn't have to, she didn't have to, to use an expensive vial of perfume to show the love. The fact that she busted into Solomon's house, the fact that she fell at his feet and is crying and wiping his feet, that probably got the, the, the image across of how much she loved him, how much she appreciated the man that he was and what he could do for her and her sins. But she took it one extra step to say, okay, I also would like to sacrifice some. Coming here, crying at your feet, doesn't sacrifice more than just my reputation, but I also want to give you something of my means. I want to honor you from something that I have as an extra layer to show you just how much I love and respect you. How can we do that tomorrow? How can we do that tonight? Being here says a lot, right? This is a Sunday night crowd watching and, and, and being in attendance here tonight. This says a lot. But how can we take it the next step and say, okay, Christ, God, I, I want to sacrifice something. I want to do more than just write the check for the plate or write a check for PayPal, whatever, however we pay now. I want, I want to sacrifice. God, I'm going to cancel my plans on Monday night so I can spend a little bit more time with my family. God, I'm, I'm going to cancel some goals. I'm going to kind of diminish this goal right here so maybe I can make more of a purpose out of my spiritual goals in my life right now. God, I, I'm going to open my eyes as, as wide as they can be, right, to find people who need assistance financially, emotionally, whatever it may be. How can we start tonight not letting the customs control us, but also not letting any of our material limits limit us to what, how we can show God that we love them, show God that we love him. And then lastly, I love this idea, this contrast with Simon, the sinful woman. Simon, who, who may or may not have invited Jesus into his home, maybe more for the honor of himself, so that people could see, well, Simon held Jesus at this table, right? Well, did you hear Simon had Jesus over last night? What, what a great honor that he has. The sinful woman did not make honor about herself. Personal honor was not her aim. And how can we do that? What decisions, actions do we need to change or, or to do to make personal honor not our aim in the things that we do for God? It simply all comes down to our reaction to what God has done for you. And that's the problem with Simon, right? The main difference between Simon and the sinful woman is Simon didn't really think he had many sins to be forgiven. Simon didn't have many sins in his eyes that, that ever needed forgiveness in the first place. And so because of that, he didn't show that much love. And on the contrast, on the contrary, the sinful woman, well, the whole city knows how many sins she has, right? The whole city knows. Everywhere she, everywhere she goes, she's, re, she's reminded of her shame and disgrace. And in response to that love is this amazing display of respect and adoration that she shows in the house of Simon that night. How does what God has done for you change your every day? Does it affect your tomorrow? What will you do different tomorrow because of what, Jesus, what God has already done for you today? Will you, will you wake up any differently? Will your 9 to 5 be affected at all because of what God has done for you? Will your, will, your, will your morning routine be changed in the slightest bit to reflect adoration for what God has done for you? Will your drive to work be filled with sports radio or podcasts? Will it be spent in, 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 possible, in, in time of prayer to reflect what God has done for you? Will the small conversations, your interactions, your reactions to the people that you work with or the people you go to school with, will that reflect what God has done for you? Will the decisions that you make tomorrow show to anyone that you have an all-powerful, all-loving God that's present in your life? Does it affect your every day? Does it affect your relationships? Does it change your decisions? Because if not, then maybe we don't have the right grasp on forgiveness that we've been, that we've been given. God has given everything for us. And all he asks is that to that sacrifice to change everything in our lives. 
And I want to sit at this idea for a second in the few minutes I have left that God gave everything. You know, I think about God, I think about concepts I don't understand, right? He's all-powerful. He's all-present. He's all-knowing. Things that my mind, who's very limited in all those uh, capacities, are very limited, right? And so when I think about God as all-powerful, what does that mean? He's all-knowing. Well, he's, he's everywhere at one time. These, there's these, these, there are these principles that are never-ending of Him. I think about Lamentations chapter 3. In verse 22, the Lord's love never ends and His mercy never stops, right? When I think of God, I think about someone who has no end, who, ha- who will never run out of love, right? It's not like if he, sh- if he gave everyone in this room all the love He had, well, He'd run out of the, of the people that show up tomorrow, right? There's no ending to His love. There's no ending to His, to his mercy. Think about, think about 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 the never-ending patience that God has. This slow patience that seems to never run out, that he, He's patient for all to come and repent and to come to Him. Think about these resources that God gives His people day in and day out that don't come from a supply bank. They don't come from a limited resource. He's never going to run out of love. He's never going to run out of mercy or grace or forgiveness. And then I think about the resource that He only has one of. You think about that. There's a resource that God only has one of. Only one of. Some of you in this room may, may have more of this resource than God has. And that's a son. He's only got one of those. When God, when, when we needed love, he gave it n- from a never-ending resource. When we need grace, he, it, that comes from a pot that, that's, that it's impossibly large, right? You're never going to reach the bottom of. But when reconciliation called upon his son, the, the only resource that he has one of, right? He still gave it. He still gave everything that he had. And how does that change us? How does that affect our day? that we have been touched by the love and gratitude and sacrifice of all-powerful God. Tonight, I want to wrap up by reading something. I mean, quick thought. I'd like to read a children's book. Um, I know that's kind of odd, right? It's called The Giving Tree. It's one of my favorites from elementary school. I keep it in my office because I like it. Um, and I'm old enough to buy the book now, so I have the book. Nana will be, Nana will be proud. Um, this is one of my favorite books. It's so simple. Shel Silverstein is a great author. He illustrates in really cool, weird ways, and I like it. I want to read this tonight. It's not going to take very long. I'm going to flip through it on the PowerPoint and by, behind me. And I want you to watch this story of two people, or two personalities, I should say. One who gives all and one who takes all. The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. I feel like I should be sitting in a chair right here, right? Um, once there was, I'm going to do this quickly. Once there was a tree, and she loved a little boy. And every day the boy would come, and he would gather her leaves and make them into crowns and play king of the forest. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches and eat apples. And they would play hide and go seek. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the boy loved the tree, and very, very much, and the tree was happy. But time went by, and the boy grew older, and the tree was often alone. Then one day the boy came to the tree, and the tree said, Come, boy, come, and climb up my trunk, and swing from my branches and the apples, and play in my shade, and be happy. And I'm too big to climb and play, said the boy. I want to buy things and have fun. I want, I want some money. Can you give me some money? I'm sorry, said the tree, but I have no money. I have only apples and, a- and, and apples. Take my apples, boy, and sell them in the city. Then you will have money and you will be happy. So the boy climbed to the tree, gathered her apples, and carried them away, and the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time. The tree was sad. One day the boy came back, and the tree, and, and the tree shocked with joy. And she said, come, boy, climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and be happy. And I'm too busy to climb trees, said the boy. I want a house to keep me warm. He said, I want a wife and I want children, so I need a house. Can you give me a house? I have no house at the tree. The forest is my house, but you may cut off my branches and build a house 
then you will be happy. And so the boy cut off her branches and carried them away to build his house. And the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time. When he came back, the tree was so happy she could hardly speak. Come, boy, she whispered. Come and play. I'm too old and, and, and sad to play, said the boy. I want a boat that will take me far away from here. Can you give me a boat? Cut down my trunk and make a boat, said the tree. Then you can sail away and be happy. And so the boy cut down her trunk and made a boat and sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really. And after a long time, the boy came back. And I'm, I'm sorry, boy, said the tree. But I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. Well, my teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. You cannot swing on them. I'm too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. You cannot climb. And I, I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm, I'm sorry, sighed the tree. I wish that I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I'm just an old stump, and I'm sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I'm very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up, so, uh, herself up as she could. Well, an old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down, sit down and rest. And the boy did, and the tree was happy. We serve a God that gave everything, even when it took everything. This story is a heartwarming and a sad story because you see this love a tree has for a boy, and any time he comes asking, she's there to, to give back her apples, her branches, even if it hurt, even if it took more of than she could, she could offer. And his response never quite accurately re responded to that, did it? His response to that never, it, it always left me unsettled. I, I would read this book and I would be overjoyed with the love of the tree, but I would always be upset at the boy because he kept taking and he kept taking and he kept taking and he never once he really said thank you and never once reflected gratitude for what the tree had done for him and it used to upset me. And then I look at my life and I see what God has done for me day in and day out, day, day after day after day, and I go, have I responded accurately? Or do I, just keep, do I just keep waking up every morning saying, God, I need, I need some help. Help me in this, Lord. If you could help me get through this problem, Lord. If you could help me see this through. If you could make it, if you could help me get through the day. And then I just keep on living my life. Maybe I go on for a long time. Maybe I, I get what I need and, and I stop asking. And, and, I'm, and I'm gone for days, weeks before I come back to God. And maybe when I come back, all that I'm doing is I'm just asking for more. Maybe you find yourself in that sometimes that vicious chain sometimes too. Tonight, all I'm asking for us to do is stop and ask ourselves, has what God done for you changed your every day? Has it changed your eternity? Well, I pray that's the case, right? I, I pray that what God is offering you and has done for you has changed your eternity. And a lot of us could say yes. But if, God, if what God has done for you hasn't changed your every day, then maybe it really hasn't changed your eternity, right? If you're not reflecting what God has done for you in your everyday decisions, relationships, your reactions, your speech, your, everything that makes up who you are, then has it really changed your eternity? Because if I find myself in that spot, then maybe I don't accurately understand the concept of forgiveness in my life. I've been forgiven of a lot in my life, and that means I have a lot to love. God has allowed me to continue to live. God has allowed me to continue to be loved. And God has given me everything that I've asked of, and more. And I just hope that I can reflect a small image of gratitude before I keep on asking. Tonight, what are you seeking for? If it's things that you're seeking for, like peace and joy and hope, then we have, I have a different tree I'd like to interest you in, right? Shel Silverstein would write about a giving tree, but long before that, 2000 before that, our God would give us a giving tree, or his son hung on one, and he gave everything that man needed for all of time. Can I interest you in that tree instead? And what sacrifice was left on that wood that day? Maybe you've already accepted that gift and you're just needing help. 
you're needing prayers, you're needing comfort, you're needing your family, if there's anything we can do for you tonight, I just ask you to come forward as we stand and sing. If you haven't had the opportunity to take part in the Lord's Supper today, it's been prepared for you. We will sing number 343, 343, um, and if you will make your way to the, to the back, the ushers will show you where to go. 343. <coughs>
Uh, we're going to sing a closing song and then we'll be dismissed in prayer. If you would stand, we'll sing number 892 and be dismissed in prayer. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. so thankful for the blessings that you've so abundantly given us. We're mindful of the fact that everything that we have and everything that we experience, that's good. It comes from you. Every good and perfect gift, we're told, comes from above. And Father, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the time that we've spent together tonight. What a wonderful thrill and joy it is to be together with brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray, Father, that we each are encouraging to one another. Guide us, Father. Help us all to show the love that's been shown to us, to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.